Welcome back to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Fifth Wave. During our short break over Christmas and New Year, we're resharing some of our favorite conversations from the last 12 months. First up is legendary Tony Pappas, a multifaceted hospitality entrepreneur with a global career spanning Michelin-star restaurants, boutique bakeries, specialty coffee roasting with all-press espresso, and most recently, developing an olive farm in southern Italy. In this conversation, Tony shares his business instinct of knowing when to jump in and when to step away, and the importance of fostering a cohesive culture by bringing every team member along on the adventure. Yes, uh, look, I left school when I was 15, and my first job was in an orchard where I was uh, going to be an apprentice, and then I got distracted and decided to hitchhike around New Zealand. Um, and did a fair bit of surfing at the time, um, arrived eventually back in Auckland and uh, was looking for a job and I ended up in a kitchen. Um, and I just thought, man, I want a bit more of this. Uh, it's so exciting. I like this whole hospitality thing. And then I went on to get a job in a little 30-seater restaurant called Salters in Auckland. I, I just wanted to get more of it. So I studied and had this burning desire to go and work in a kitchen in Europe and, and see firsthand for myself all these beautiful things I'd learnt about. And I did my London city and guilds. And uh, by the time I was you know, 21, I, got, I was in, the, in a kitchen which had a Michelin star cooking French food in Amsterdam with all, the, all that marvellous produce that I'd only heard about. So that was sort of the, uh, the start of my career in hospitality, which is an industry I absolutely love. I love the people in it. I love the independent thinkers. And that led on to uh, a career in restaurants, my own restaurants eventually, and uh, some associated things, a, a bread company, um, and then teaming up with Mike Allpress in the late 90s uh, in the coffee industry. Wow. Okay. So you spent some time in Sydney as well? Yes. Tell us about that, that era there. So I, I spent uh, 30 years nearly in Sydney. I went back because I'd uh, had a, a sort of loose arrangement with some friends to open a restaurant in Sydney, which I was very excited about. And um, we opened a restaurant called the Bayswater Brasserie. I became a partner in that and the chef. And that was in September 1982. And that restaurant went on for 20 years. Um, very successful. Yes, and it was a brilliant time to be in Sydney because um, the, the world of food was changing. There was a, a very strong feeling for produce uh, in the younger chefs. And uh, we as chefs were approaching producers, people who were raising poultry or fishermen, um, and having a conversation directly with the, the person who's harvesting it or catching it and the farmers and the fishermen. And, you know, we were hanging out in butcheries and uh, going to the farm and all that sort of stuff. So, and that was a turning point for, for cooking and food in Australia, following on from what was happening in other parts of the world, of course. I think that was the year I joined the, the culinary industry in, 82. in Sydney, 82. When I arrived, I knew there was a young uh, New Zealander who had a restaurant called Pegram's, and his name was Mark Armstrong. 
And I went and knocked on the window of the kitchen one day and he invited me and he said, oh, you know, Kiwi boy, you've got to go and see this guy, blah, blah, blah. blah. And Damien was the top of the list and he was working at a, uh, as, as a part owner um, of a restaurant called Butler's in Victoria oh, yeah. Street in King's Cross. And so I rang Damien and I said, look, I'm Mark Armstrong told me to give you a call. I've been working in a one-star French restaurant in Amsterdam for a few, couple of years and I'm looking for a job. So I went and had a chat. He gave me a job and he had just purchased Claude's from Claude and he and uh, his wife Josephine went off uh, and set that up and uh, kept that running and and yeah. rebuilt it and uh, it was an absolutely iconic little restaurant. So yes, I, st I started there and then went on to, uh, I worked with Moens Bayes Benson, who used to own Butler's at that stage uh, with Damien. And, uh, and then we went on and started preparing to open uh, the Basewater Brasserie, which took about 14 months to build and uh, put together. So I was quite young, but we was, I was 23 when we opened that. And, um, and, it, and it was... Uh, it was just mad. It opened and went ballistic. We had to queue up the street and it was intense. Yeah. And I think it took me about four years to get, get the show under control <laughs> and figure out what I was doing. Um, and I guess that was the first time I really understood the importance of building teams and uh, it wasn't just all about cooking lovely food and... Um, visiting producers and all of that sort of stuff. It was actually, if you're going to be able to do this consistently uh, under this sort of pressure, you have to be organized and you can't do it all by yourself. And there was a, there was a bakery also. Was that founded in Sydney? In 92, I, I'd gotten to know Ken Hom quite well, who's a very well-known American Asian chef. And I said to Ken, I'd, I'd always loved, I'd eaten at Chez Panisse in Berkeley, and I said, I'd always love to go. I said, I, I, look, I know um, Alice, and uh, I'll tear it up for you. So I went and stayed with Ken, and, and I, I did a stage at Chez Panisse, and discovered this incredible bread that one of her former chefs, Steve Sullivan, was making from the Acme Bakery. And uh, I came back with a recipe in my pocket and had this, uh, fantasy about making bread at a, a slightly different level. We'd always made some bread at the brasserie, and I'd made my first loaf of bread when I was about 15 and was fascinated by that. So I had a, a love for the I idea of making bread. And then I had a couple of guys in the pastry kitchen at the, the brasserie that were really keen, and so we started developing it, and then I built a approving room upstairs in the pastry kitchen, and, and it went on from there, and that led to purchasing a, a run-down bakery and all of its equipment in the Waterloo area of mm. Sydney. And then we went on. From there, we built a new bakery in the back of uh, what was the second iteration of All Press and uh, an upgrade in, in roasting equipment. So how did all this lead to coffee? Yeah, so, <laughs> so that, the bakery sort of started around 93, 1993. And in the interim, we opened another uh, restaurant in Sydney called The Boathouse on Blackwattle Bay. Opened that restaurant in 1996. And then Mike Allprest had contacted me a few years before that. So going back a few steps, in the late 80s, Mike had set up a coffee cart in Auckland after a trip to the US. And 
he came to me and said, I think there's a coffee roaster, an old rundown coffee roaster in the back of this building near where you live. You find out. So we hauled out a coffee roaster and I helped him ship it back to New Zealand. And that was the start of All Press. And then a few years later, Mike asked if I'd join forces with him and set up this fresh coffee roasting business in Australia. And then I discussed with him at the time, well, if let's plan to do it in Australia first. But if we are successful at that, maybe we should think a little bigger about it and um, go further afield, perhaps London. So, so be careful what you wish for. In um, 2010, I ended up in London. Um, so that was the start of the coffee business. And that was my introduction to La Mazzocco and all of the crew there. We, we properly started roasting coffee in Sydney in August 1999. And after lots of planning, and um, um, I, I bought nine Lamazaka machines and went, my God, I've got, how, how do I sell these? Never sold anything in my life. Mike said, don't worry, <laughs> you'll be all right. <laughs> so um, the rest is history, really. We had a little roastery in a warehouse uh, in O'Redden Street in Alexandria. And then I set out to look for a proper building, which we could build a new roastery in um, with a, a roaster that had more capacity. And that's when we found this building, which we put together with the, the new- the Zetlin? Was that Zetlin? Yes, the new bakery in Zetland, yes, yeah. And so eventually, game on in London. Yes, so, so we'd, we went away and had a bit of a brainstorming weekend uh, and we just talked about what we, what we wanted in our, in our futures. Actually, one of the things that I said, so, so Tony, what do you want to do in the future? And I said, well, I actually want to you know, get a farm and grow something and I'm not sure what it is yet, but I'm sure it won't be coffee. And at that stage, we were, we'd, we'd been coming up to the UK a bit. And we said, let's do it. Let's go to London. And I put my hand up and said, look, I'll, I'll go and do that. And that was great. It was a, a very positive step for the business to know that one of us was going to go up there. At the same time, we, um, we were, somebody suggested that we should go into this competition, which was running at the business school in Auckland at the university. And... Um, one of the things that we had to do was was catch up with one of the big donors, Charles, in London. So he, he had an industrial background and um, he was very heavily involved in the business school. So we met with him and then the first thing he said, right, so who, which one of you is coming to London? And, uh, and everyone said, he is. And he said, thank God for that. He said, because one of the biggest mistakes that businesses make is that one of the founders doesn't actually go and... Right get stuck in and, yeah. and do the startup. And um, so, yes, we came to London in 2010. Uh, we opened up in Redchurch Street with a, a, a roaster that we uh, packed up and shipped from New Zealand. And um, What made you choose Redchurch Street? That, that seems to be a really good decision in time because it became, maybe you even helped to define that street. But... Uh, yeah. yeah. What was it about Redshirt Street that we came, you felt was right? It was a bit of a risk at the time. Yes. That's a good question. We, it was daunting arriving, arriving in London and thinking about where you'd, where you'd open a business like we'd imagined, you know, uh, a shop front cafe with a roaster in it, um, which leads 
to wholesale supply and all that sort of stuff. Where do you do that in London? It's obviously not going to be a you know Regent Street, um, but there's so much, it's so vast. Um, but we always stayed around that little bit of East London and liked the 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 feel of it. Um, and we always kept walking up and down uh, Redchurch Street. And Redchurch Street was very different in 2009 um, from what it is today. It was it was still quite. Uh, Grungy and uh, had lots of, had a you know lovely feel about it and at the same time, and there was this building on the corner that was just you know had the shutters down and it was looked pretty sad and it was such a good sight and every time I walked past it I went it's such a good building and uh, and you know eventually said look that let's let's work on finding out who who owns it and and so that's it was simply the right just felt like the right location and um, that instinct. I think I, look, I think we've been pretty good at that over the years. Um, when I think about locations uh, for buildings, I think that's an absolutely critical step. You know, it's a it's, it's a that's your your working billboard. It's a visual thing. People can recognise uh, the the brand if they keep walking. You know, they walk past the shop enough or drive past it. And so then there was a big project. You outgrew that. Yes. And created. Yeah. So when we. When we were confident enough to say that people actually really enjoy what we're doing, and um, um, then we pushed the button on what we always hoped that we'd be able to do was was a, a long term home for all press in London, with the capacity to send coffee to to Europe and um, and then eventually open um, further roasteries in in Europe. So in two thousand and fifteen, you know, just five years are. Uh, after we arrived, we opened uh, uh, we opened Dalston Lane, and that subsequently was so successful. The entire all press business was eventually sold. Yes, that was a planned thing. Um, Mike, I think in two thousand and eighteen, wrote me a note, and uh, he said, "Look, I think it's time to do something else." And I just, you know. Uh, jumped up with a big smile on my face and I said, yeah, because I'd had an experience once before with the bread company, which I sold in 2018, um, where we developed this beautiful thing. Uh, All press we knew had, we had a wonderful business and brand, uh, we had great team in place. Um, and I felt like we completed a, we'd done a really good job. And, um, and that somebody else could take it to where it needed to go next. Um, it's a big responsibility thinking about the next 10 years of a business. And, you know, you always, I think, need to, to have a long view about these things. And it's such a relief to know that you've got it to a point in somebody else who you, you feel and trust has, has that uh, drive and ability and the financial backing and, and, and all that to take it to the next level. And that's great, opens up great opportunities for the people that you've been lucky enough to work with for all those years and, um, and the consumer. And, uh, so we had, we had a moment like that. We had, uh, we had managed to manage the, the situation in 2020 with the start of COVID. 
uh, very well, and our business worked well eventually with that. It was, you know, there was a rocky few months where we were figuring out where this might go and whether we were safe or, uh, or not. And, and then, so you had business interests in multiple parts of the world, including the boathouse in Mortal Bay. Yeah. What happened there with that? So the boat, so, so all press, um, we quite quickly figured out that we, you know, we needed to make sure we didn't run out of money and, um, and that we kept a close eye on just what was happening day to day, minute to minute, really, in the businesses. The boathouse I was watching very carefully from February because I thought this is really going to impact the business. And I was also concerned because we'd been trying to negotiate a new lease for the boathouse and it was going on for about four years. And I still really didn't, I thought we were closer, but we still didn't really have an answer. I started watching the bookings go going down and talking to the team and they were trying to find ways to turn us into a takeaway and, and pr produce, you know, it was a very different feeling from what we were doing in all press because we were, we turned our shop in Dalston into a grocery, which was, it made lots of sense. People could, had a chance to get out of their houses and come down and see someone else and pick up some things. And that was going very well. But the restaurant, we were isolated in that sense. We were on the water opposite the fish markets in Blackwater Wattle Bay, down the end of a road and very much a destination. And on the 22nd of March, I had the terrible job of uh, t telling my uh, my team that, I, first of all, the chef and um, and the manager, in the, I, I could see they were one, wondering what we we're going to do next. They had these great ideas and they were so enthusiastic about what we could do. But I said, look, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I'm, I'm so sorry, but I've, I've got to make this decision that we close the restaurant now. And so, you know, people were in tears and I announced it to the team on the Sunday, but there was no way we could have sustained COVID and not, you know, to close for a big chunk of time and reopen a restaurant is a very expensive exercise in itself uh, to fire things up again, if we had a lease. And, yeah. and there's no, there was no point in investing that into a, so, yeah, so that was the, uh, the tough thing, but the the at the end of the day, it was undoubtedly the right decision. I had I could pay everybody out, I could pay all of our suppliers. All the staff got fully paid out. All of the suppliers got fully paid out, and um, and then we had a moment. We had a lot of uh, wine left, and so we we decided to send out a, an email to our, our regulars, and we turned the place into a wine shop for three days and we had the most amazing experience with all our customers coming and bought all of our, our wonderful wines and sort of said goodbye with some tastings i hope <laughs> um yes i think there was a bit of that going on so so it was a, it was a great thing and um in the end it was you know it was it was just the right decision quite clear that you're a good decision maker especially those tough decisions do you have a framework or a process that you use, or is it just down to instinct? Um, I, I guess it has to. The gut feeling has to be right. Uh, so I do. I I do. Uh, for a start, I don't 
get all my decisions right. <laughs> I don't have any trouble making decisions. Right. Okay. I'm sure about that. Um, but I know when it does, it, if something feels wrong, I don't, I don't know if there's any tricks. It's just weighing up all of the facts, not getting too caught up in hope. Uh, you know, you've got to have some, the hope versus evidence thing. Um, you've got to have evidence that things are going to work as well. Um, but at the same time, a bit of risk that's well managed and thought through doesn't, you know, sometimes they're the best decisions in your life and, uh, uh, or in my life anyway, they've, they've worked really well. The, the boathouse was a great decision in the beginning to, to run that site as a, it was, tr it was tricky. It took me a year to negotiate the lease and get it into some sort of shape that we, we knew we could run a viable business in that, in that property and do something really special for our customers. And, um, it was a fabulous restaurant for 24 years and, uh, and it was the right time to close it under the circumstances. Yeah, well, you've certainly made some some incredible progress. Now, life after all press, obviously that was a good decision. Where are you heading now? Yeah, so the all, all press was a it felt right and uh, it was it was a great decision to move on and I and I kind of made some plans for that anyway because it wasn't something that we just uh, decided the night before. It was, you know, something that we talked about uh, quite a lot. I felt uh, we'd worked our way up to the point where it was great to hand that over. And um, we, Maureen and I had spent quite a bit of time, about 10, 12 years, going to Puglia and looking for a place where we could spend time and um, away from London. And I had this lingering thing about doing something on the land. And it was pretty obvious when we got there that it was going to be something to do with ol olives. And we we did we bought a masseria uh, in Ostuni, uh, which is between Bari and Brindisi and Puglia, and we ended up buying this masseria with some friends from Sydney and uh, renovated it, and that's now running as a guest house. It's called Masseria Manjamuso. But Maureen and I decided that we'd like like to live in Puglia for a big chunk of the year, and we took on this other property, which is a, a farm and uh, some lovely buildings, which we're halfway through renovating. And, uh, and we've started um, rejuvenating the trees. Um, um, and I suppose uh, we, we talked briefly once about the parallels between producing extra virgin olive oil yeah. and, and co the coffee business. Um, it's it, Having the frontoya on the farm is is uh, is a little bit like having a roaster in a in a roastery. Um, yeah, maybe just for a novice like me with olive oil. So the frontoya is a that's where you're pressing the olives and yeah, it's like the yeah. roastery. Yeah. So the, all the yeah, activity happens in the frontoya. It's the it's the mill, um, and um, there's some some new sophisticated machinery which extracts it cold. You've, everyone's had of cold pressed. Um, essentially, it's you produce a, a juice from the olives and you want to do that without heating the, the, the product up. So, so that's, that's our aim. We, we will launch the business into the market. It's, you know, we're not 
setting out to create a an international brand just to rejuvenate this farm and you know get it producing and and have fun producing a beautiful olive oil which is such a beautiful product it's an absolutely delicious thing so you're an artisan really if i look at I look at it in, in a sense the the craftsmanship that you've put into food to bakery then to coffee <laughs> buildings and now it's olive oil and buildings sort of thing is what's special about why olive oil now is there anything else you could have turned your hand to there's a there's a hell of a lot of olive trees in, in Puglia, yeah. <laughs> and I love the product. Right. So I love coffee and drink lots of coffee. I eat, you know, large amounts of olive oil, and um, it's good for your health. And uh, I think it's also a, the bigger picture is that we're part of a community down there, and it's been inspiring since 2017. We we started. Built, you know, rebuilding Masarimanja Muso and working with local builders who are specialists with lime and lime wash. And we've got a great relationship with those people. We've now moved about 20 minutes away into the hinterland. And we've got a, we're working with a farmer called Mimo who is, has been looking after those trees for eight or nine years. He's young um, and he's smart. And he sees us wanting to do the best out of this property and um, and invest in it. And he's excited. And we're, we produced a small amount of oil this year, and he's, he was so excited to see uh, the result of that. And so it's a, it is about being part of a community and seeing if we can show them some of the things that we've learned away, along the way. But it's an education Every morning when I get up, you know, going out and talking to these guys, wandering around, the, looking at what's going on with the trees, um, learning how to prune the trees, you know, w- w- how we manage this farm, how we really get it back to, to its prime and um, bring some beautiful oil to the table. Well, that seems like sort of a circle from early career, began on an orchard and now you're kind of back. Yeah. Um, is this going to be a business or just a hobby? Oh, no, we'll run it as a business. Um, it, it just gives us a few guidelines and puts a bit of pressure on us and uh, makes us uh, do a good job and strive for it. Uh, at the end of the day, the most important thing to me is that the, the oil tastes great and everyone's proud of it. Can't wait to try and we, it. And we give people in the community some jobs and yeah. um, agriculture is quite, uh, you know, it's, it's relentless business. It's uh, You start to worry about your trees. and yeah. <laughs> what's yeah. going on with the land and the weather and yeah less less predictable than hospitality which is unpredictable at the best of times <laughs> so so you've developed businesses in many parts of the world and often multiple businesses at the same time to do this successfully it seems to me that you need to build skilled autonomous teams who just get on with the job so what's the secret to building great teams and and managing them and often remotely well, communication is a is a huge part of that, isn't it? I think people feeling like they're part of something that's an adventure, and obviously working with respect for the people that you work with. And in in, in our businesses over the the years, we have tons of great friends who have remained friends, and we're in touch all the time with them since we worked together. And um, I think when I when I talk to them about their lives after the business, and when I ask them what is uh, 
what did you particularly enjoy about working with us? It was always, um, you know, it was always like an adventure. I think that that's, um, that's something that I like. I like an adventure. I like a bit of, uh, I like to work in the gray. I, um, I'm not particularly black and white and I like to figure things out and understand get to understand how I can do them better. And, and I think choosing people who are like-minded, I've always worked very well with people who are, are attracted to the hospitality industry. Because as I said right in the beginning, I think they're, they're independent thinkers often. And putting together the right combination of people is another important thing. So I think also choosing people for who have the right skills for the right roles. And uh, I know that sounds like an obvious one, but yeah, I think uh, that's, that's pretty important. Brilliant tips there for success, communication, adventure, respect, hire like-minded people with the right skills. I'm fascinated because you've been someone that's almost like everything you've, you've done over this career is, is turned to gold, but it's... It's over time. It's over a long time. So you're obviously a long-term thinker as well. Don't do anything with the short term in mind. I've always thought about doing anything I do for the long haul until it's time to change. And I think you can see there, I've moved on from coffee and moved on from bread and um, and you know coffee machines and um, and restaurants. Um, happily, you know, feeling really. Uh, satisfied with my involvement and very feel very blessed to have worked with so many fantastic people because you don't do any of these things by yourself um you achieve with other others and through others is there any chance that there might be another hospitality or even some kind of a food service vision there perhaps in your properties in italy Yes, uh, interesting. When we had to go to the notary to sign up for this property, which is called Masseria Borzoni, in the deed, it's quite a, an interesting process in Italy. You go to a notary and they have to read all of the, the deed to you and you have to agree with it and then sign off on it. That was actually two and a half hours of reading. And But I was asked the question before we got there, you know, tell us all the other things that you want to want to put in there. So so I said, uh, we want to be able to do a wind farm. We want a um, we want itinerant uh, worker accommodation built on the site. Um, we need a tasting room, a, a cellar for the olive oil, and a tavola calda, uh, which is you know a little restaurant. Um, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is having a. Um, a bar in London, where we, which is like a filling station for your olive oil. You can come and collect your olive okay. oil there. A tasting, a place where we can teach people about olive oil, and a san and and we make great sandwiches there, and and a nice glass of wine to go with it. Um, corner shop, hole in the wall, but with a really neat tasting olive oil station in it. Great. Well, it seems like we're going to be tasting more of your delicious food sometime, sometime soon in London, as well as uh, down in Puglia. Tony, um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, I think it's, uh, somebody said to me once, Tony, you can do all those things. You can do anything you like. Uh, you can do everything in life. 
You just can't do it all at the same time. In other words, be patient. So you've had um, a very successful career and you, you know, we've established here you're, you're a great decision maker and you've, you've added a lot of value to the whole hospitality industry and you've, you know, you have a reputation as thousands of friends throughout the world of hospitality that you've, you've helped to improve their careers. And what, so you've obviously had some good people around you and there must have been some people that have inspired you. Who, who are those people that have mentored or inspired you to be the person you are? Um, well, I can think of um, two right off the bat. I think um, one of them's uh, Alice Waters from Shea Pennies, and I think I mentioned that um, earlier to you. And, and the second one, of course, is Piero Bambi, who you, who you knew very well, and they are both in different ways, inspirational people who have who've followed their principles all the way through their working lives. And um, starting with Alice, uh, I worked in, uh, at Shape and East doing a stage for about a week in 1992. And it was, a, it was an amazing experience to... One, to, to see this restaurant was like an, an amazing entity, which was like a whole ecosystem. You know, this produce would come in from little farms around the place. In fact, Berkeley, I was amazed. They had these urban gardens, like allotments of beautiful things growing around it. So we had all this lovely produce coming in the first morning I was, I was there. I was just astonished. It was, it was wonderful. They write... Uh, the menu every morning, though they've got a plan which is based on what is seasonally available from the farms that they work with. And then, you know, right through to everything that was used, all the compost went away, all, everything was, there was a whole area of recycling and it was just so well organised and, you know, farmers dropping their stuff in. And I came back absolutely inspired. I went and did a course for a year in, in uh, bakery technology, which is a, one-off course at the Technical Institute in Sydney and studied the science of bread again to up, up the ante on, on my bread skills and, um, and then you know half the year studying microbiology and the other half practicing what we learnt in, in, the, in the bakery. <clears throat> Fantastic, inspiring. Wonderful. Yeah, certainly, you know, that's 50 years ago. What a pioneer of, of farm-to-table, localness, and that Edible schoolyard sounds amazing, yeah. Amazing thing. And of course, the other person is Piero, and uh, what an inspirational person, a, a really talented engineer, designer, somebody who, who actually really appreciated um, baristas. And I think that's, that was part of his success. He could no, not only build a machine that had... had uh, beautiful form and was incredibly functional, but he he actually understood the the end of the process and um, and I think that's why he's been so very much loved by the specialty coffee industry. Certainly, well, he's got an incredible pedigree or, or had an incredible pedigree as well. So yeah, he's a he was an inspirational man, a real visionary. So those are those are two people who have had you know uh, they've done amazing things uh, with their lives and their chosen professions and and I've I've I always look to them for 
for that to, to have that feeling when I'm going into something something new like we are at the moment with um, farming and you know, beautiful olive trees. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show, please recommend us to a friend or colleague. And if you want to stay informed, visit worldcoffeeportal.com to get access to all the latest global coffee news, including the weekly coffee dose, our newsletter collecting all the big coffee news stories of the week. Links are in the show notes. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And until next time, stay safe, stay passionate, and stay caffeinated.